0: So, uh, today we are finishing up our series called Free. We will start a new series next week that we're calling Investigating Jesus. I think you'll enjoy that. You'll get a lot out of that. If you've missed any messages in this series, you can always go back and catch them on our website at hammockstreetchurch.com or just type Hammock Street Church" into YouTube and you'll pick up our YouTube channel and you got it there. We have a lot to cover today. So let's pray together and then we'll jump right in. Father God, thank you for gathering us together this morning as your ecclesia, as your community, as your people. As we finish up our series today, God, help us to understand what it truly means to be free in Christ. We thank you, we love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today we're going to be addressing some things that will help us better understand Something that I'm pretty sure we all want to know, and, and that is this: what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, if you've been around Hammock Street, part of the Hammock Street community, if you've noticed, you will rarely hear us talk about becoming a Christian. And There's reasons for that. Uh, briefly, you know, the word Christian only exists in the English New Bible or the English New Testament three times three times. Two of the times it exists, it's somewhat derogatory. Only the last of the mentions, it's sort of redeemed a little bit by Peter. But really, we prefer to focus on following Jesus and and focus on having a relationship with Jesus. Because Jesus came into the world to do something that had never before been seen. He did not just come into the world to introduce a new way of doing religion. He came into the world to introduce the world to the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. Jesus introduced us to the way, the way to have an authentic and powerful connection to God. Indeed, the thing that caused Rome to go after those first century Believers was not what they believed. Rome didn't care what they believed. And it wasn't what they were being taught. Rome didn't really care about that either. The thing that caused Rome to persecute the followers of Jesus. Was the way that they were devoted to Jesus. And what they were really perplexed by. Was the devotion continued even after Rome executed Jesus. The Jesus movement wouldn't die Even though Jesus had died. And that's because the Jesus movement wasn't dedicated to just being a movement. It was devoted to a person. The person of Jesus. The person who'd just died right outside their city. It was a person who who they'd all met. And they spent time with the people who knew Jesus. A person who'd appeared to people they knew both before and after his death. When somebody predicts their own death, and it happens, and then they come back from it, he's somebody you want to listen to. And they knew that, and then they claimed that Jesus was their king, their living king. And they they proclaimed that something about Jesus' spirit, or the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, inhabited them. And because of that these followers exhibited an astounding faith. In fact, their faith was so astounding that years later, Jesus lived on in and through them and their progeny, their children, their grandchildren. And Jesus didn't just live on figuratively. He literally lived on in their lives. So much so that their faith in Jesus survived the first century and the second century, and then the third century, without a Bible, as we know it. And their faith ultimately became the official faith of the Holy Roman Empire. But something happened. And we know this: Somewhere along the way, this living, vibrant, relationship-driven movement took a turn. And it became, like so many other movements, it became just another religion. One that it was never meant to become. Now, I said all that to say that one of your problems and one of the reasons that you struggle, the way that you sin gives you trouble, and the way that you do following Jesus, the way you do it feels like religion. And it's because you bought into what you've been taught. And that makes sense, it's not your fault. But you bought into what you've been taught. You bought into the way that it's been modeled for you. And so you approach Christianity like a religion. So you need to understand, and I hope this series has helped a little bit with that, that Jesus didn't come to start another religion. Now watch this. All religions, and think about this, all religions have several things in common. In general, the rules of religion kind of go like this. You must. Okay? That's a rule of religion. You must. But you didn't. So you must, but you didn't, and now you're in trouble. That's the rules of most religions. Pick a religion, any religion you like, and you'll hear a leader of that religion or a teacher of that religion say, Here's what you have to do. And you start off thinking, Okay, I can do that. But what happens? You don't do that. And then they tell you, uh-oh, you didn't do that. Now you're in trouble. In his book, The Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis noted that all religions have rules or laws in common. What are they? Don't harm others, right? You've heard that before. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Don't neglect the needy. And since these are all reasonable things, and they are, are pretty much happy to go Okay, I'm going to be religious, and I'm going to follow these rules. And if and when we fail at following one or all of those rules, we find ourselves thinking, oh, no, I failed. God's going to be angry with me. So many times over the years, people call me and go, why is God angry with me? The other thing you think about religion is this. Once you break the rules, there are even more rules to help you to know what to do now that you've broken the previous rules. Lots of rules, 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 and religion. And sadly, Christianity, after about the year 280 AD, began to move away from it being a new thing, living in a vibrant relationship with a living and resurrected Savior, towards it becoming just another world religion. And why did all this happen? Well, it happened because when it comes to God, our default is religion. When it comes to God, our default is rules. Just tell me the rules. Tell me what the rules are. And I'll do my best to keep the rules. And then, here's what we do. We keep the rules, or at least we look like or we feel like we've kept the rules. And we feel quite proud of ourselves. And we feel quite proud of ourselves for keeping the rules that we want to keep. And as for the rules we don't want to keep, well... Not those rules, I mean, we rationalize our failure to ourselves until we convince ourselves that those rules, well, they really don't matter. I keep the rules I like and the rules I don't like and I don't keep, they don't matter. And when we do this, what are we doing? We're essentially creating our own version of our own religion. And this is true of all religions. We're not the only ones, I'm not just picking on us, all religions. For example, this is, this is you know, near and dear to my heart, There are approximately 15 million Jews in the world. Okay, so there's roughly 8 billion people in the world. 15 million are Jews. That's 0.02% of the world's population is Jewish. Okay? Now, of that, approximately 2.2 million of them are observant. That's roughly 15% of all the 15 million Jews are what we would call observant. Observant Jews strive to obey all the laws. The Jews have 613 laws. Observant Jews strive to obey those laws. You see them around town. You see them when you go to Winn-Dixie every day but Saturday in the black hats and the beards. These are the observant Jews around. You can can tell who they are. They work on observing the 613 Jewish laws, which means that 85% of the Jewish people are living under the terms of a religion that they made up. For themselves. Think about that. That, by the way, gets me in trouble with my people, okay? They do not like when I say things like that. But it's true. If you're not keeping the laws, what are you doing? But every religion has these loopholes. Which makes it so that every religion is filled with hypocrites. And this fact applies to Christians who choose religion over a growing relationship with Jesus. So today... We're going to look at the difference between following Jesus and a religious approach to Christianity. And I want you to know this before we get started. If you choose the religious approach to Christianity, which of course you're entitled to choose. You can do it. But you're going to spend your life frustrated. And you're going to spend your life frustrated because it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It never works. And you want to know something else? That was never God's intent. God never intended for you to do that. God did not send his son into the world as a model for you to try to live up to. Ooh, that's interesting, isn't it? What about the what would Jesus do bracelet? No, no, no. That would have been cruel of God to send Jesus into the world as a model for you to live up to because nobody can live up to Jesus' example. God sent Jesus, his son, to give his life not only for you, not only for me, but to you and to me. And until you understand that, you're going to spend a lot of time trying your best to be a Christian. And live up to a law and a measure just like the followers of so many other religions try to do. And guess what? You're going to fail at it. Just like they do. Now, The true followers of Jesus are lawless. We're going to look at what that means right now. Now, the Apostle Paul explained to us what it was like when he was a religious person. Remember, Paul was a rule follower. He was a Pharisee. He was trained under one of the major rabbis of his day, Rabbi Gamaliel. Paul knew what it was like to be a religious person. And he knew that when he was a religious person, it left him feeling like a complete failure. Remember, this is where we started this series in Romans chapter 7. Paul said, for I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Do, do, do. In other words, I know what I ought to do, but I don't do it. And I feel guilty all the time. I just walk around feeling guilty all the time. It kind of reminds you of a Woody Allen movie. Then, sadly, the church comes along and says, I'll give you some more rules to go along with the rules that you've broken. So the rules that the church invented, well, you know what some of them are. Well, you can go do penance. Penance. Or you can say several of these prayers or sayings, and, and several of those prayers or sayings. Oh, you did that? Say this. You did that? Say this. Or, or you could try to suffer for God. Make your life miserable a little bit. And hopefully, that'll work to pay him back. But it doesn't. And every time you fall short, guess what? There'll be even more things that you can do to make it up. A- God, And that's what religion does. And Paul says, I totally get it. I totally understand that frustration. Romans 7, 16. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Now, see, Paul's not saying that rules in and of themselves are bad. He's just saying that he's incapable of following them or keeping them. And in a nutshell, that's religion. So when Paul gets done with all of this, and he's thinking about it, and he's lamenting the fact that he can't keep the laws, what does he say at the end? He says this. He goes, ugh. Oh. And I know he said the ugh part, because you know it's what we do. What a wretched man I am. And I think that at some point, every religious person says this to themselves or thinks this to themselves. Think about it. Listen to a sermon on marriage, and they think, okay, got it. That's what a good husband looks like. Ugh. What a wretched husband I am. Or they hear a message on parenting and they go, okay, got it. That's what a good parent looks like. Oh, what a wretched parent I am. Or they hear a message on being neighborly. And they go, okay, that's what a good neighbor looks like. Oh, what a wretched neighbor I am. You know better, but you just can't seem to do better. And that's the trap of religion. As we've talked about, Paul knew that every time he sinned, there was a death. Whenever you break the law of any religion, there's always a consequence. There's always pain. There's always death. When you break a rule, when you break a law, you hurt yourself and you hurt other people, or you hurt your relationships, you hurt your marriage. Or you hurt your connection to your kids or to your parents. Or, or you hurt your health or you hurt your finances. There's always some kind of death when you break a law. But Paul flipped that religious script around. He didn't ask a what question, what can I do about it? He asked the question that changed everything. Paul asked who, not what, who, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. And then he answered his own question in the next verse. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, our Lord. Now, this is bigger than you think. So I want you to kind of go back in time. If you guys remember Peabody and Sherman, we're getting in the way back machine, okay? When Paul wrote this, Jesus wasn't somebody who lived 2,000 years before, he was somebody who lived 20 years before. I mean, he was a Right there, when Paul wrote this, he was hanging around with the people that Jesus knew. He was hanging around with James, Jesus' younger brother. Paul had been in meetings with Peter, who'd spent three years listening to everything Jesus said. Paul probably knew Mary, you know, the Virgin Mary. Paul probably knew her because John, the apostle John, was taking care of her. Remember, Jesus assigned John that responsibility when Jesus was on the cross. So to Paul, Jesus wasn't just some concept. And to these people, Jesus wasn't some some amorphous whatever. To them, Jesus was just Jesus. So to Paul, Jesus wasn't a fictitious religious person. Jesus was a part of Paul's world. And Jesus' death and resurrection was an historical event in Paul's world. And Paul, you know, he said, oh, Jesus? Oh, he died 20, 22 years ago, and he rose from the dead. And his spirit, not the memory of his spirit, mind you, the spirit, his actual spirit lives in us. And, and through Jesus, there's a way to break the bondage of religion, to break the bondage of I should, but I can't. I want to, but I've never been able to. And so much of Paul's writing, he speaks about our relationship with the law. Now, when Paul was talking about the law, he was talking about the Jewish law. But it's appropriate to apply Paul's words to any law that you're following. The law of every religion or even the law of no religion at all, a civil law. Everybody has a law. Everybody in their mind has a law that tells them the way that they're supposed to live. That they don't even live up to. So Paul did his best to draw the distinction between following Jesus and living under the law. As long as you approach Christianity thinking that there's a God and he's given us rules and you're going to do your best to live up to those rules, you're going to miss it. You'll never experience the Christian life the way it was intended to be lived. And here's how Paul said it. For what the law was powerless to do Because it was weakened by the sinful nature. What the law was powerless to do. What does that even mean? Well, when we flip it, it makes more sense. So let's ask it this way. Do you know what the law is good for? That's really what he's asking. Do you know what the law is good for? Laws are good for telling you when you've failed. Think about it. Do you ever really think about a law unless you've broken it? Or... Are getting ready to break it? Like, do you really think about the? You, you don't. What's the law in eating a hamburger? You don't think about that. You just eat your hamburger. If you had a law against it, you probably think, Hmm, should I be eating? a hamburger? Can I break this law? And if you live your life focused on trying not to break a law, you can't help but to be live in fits and starts. It's, it, you can't flow along with life because you're always stopping. Is there a law? Is there a law? I did so well yesterday. Oh, but today I'm such a failure. I had a great week last week, but this week, I couldn't hold it together. So, we all do this, by the way, and we all suffer from this. And it gets worse when you fail in keeping yourself perfect under the law, if you consider yourself a religious person. So, if you consider yourself a religious person and you're not keeping yourself perfect under the law, what do you do next? Well, typically, you find another religious person, you ask them, what do I do now? Because that's what you do. you got to fix it. And they'll tell you what you need to do next to make it up to God. And the cycle continues. The cycle's perpetuated. Fail, apologize, try harder. Fail, apologize, try harder. Forever and ever until you die. Do you know what this means? It means that the law can't help you become a better law keeper. And it also means that the law can't help you become a better person. The law is merely a mirror to show you how awful you are. You look into the mirror of the law and you go, ooh, I'm not keeping that law. I am not a good person. Well, here's how Paul said it. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the sinful nature, hold on, God did. What does this mean? It's right there in the last two words. God did. God did something for me. God did something for you that the law simply couldn't do. Now, if you grew up in church, in your mind right now, you're going, ah, I know this one. I know this answer. God made it so I can go to heaven when I die. And yes, that is true. That is our gospel. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins on the cross when he died and he rose again. And if we turn from the sins and we turn to Jesus, we make him our Lord and leader, we can have eternal life. But here, Paul's not only talking about that. Paul's also talking about something different. He's talking about what the law did to the power of sin. The law serves as a constant reminder of what you should not do and what you should do. And when you can't do it, the law judges you, and the law convicts you, and then the law sentences you. But Paul was saying, I want to take you in a different direction here. See, our natural inclination, whether we're religious or not, is to approach God through the law. It's like this. There's a good God. He's told us some stuff to do. And I'll do my best to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. I mean, that's what we do. But because you're not all that good, and I'm not all that good, this formula leads to defeat every time. And when we're defeated in this way, we dismiss it by saying, or at least by thinking, well, nobody's perfect. And then we walk right back behind the horse, and we try to keep the law again. But Paul's telling the believers in Rome how to change that, how to change that trajectory, which we saw last week when Heath was up here. Remember what he told us? Romans 6.14, sin shall no longer be your master. Remember how we, we said that, we we're, were all over here in Adam, remember our bowls, our magical bowls in Adam, and when Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and we're all born into Adam's sin, so we're all in here, we're all, remember when we were all in here, and then we moved to become In Jesus, right? We went from in Adam to being in Jesus. We were born in Adam. But once we put our faith in Jesus, now we are reborn into Christ. We're taken out of Adam. We're placed into Christ. And when we're in Christ, sin is no longer our master. We have the power to say, Sin, I see that you're tempting me. And boy, I want to give in to that temptation. But you're not my master anymore. Alright, so that's pretty clear so far. But then Paul gets confusing again. For sin is no longer your master because you're not under the law. Well, This is Paul's way of introducing the believers to the Jesus way, to the different way. Now, most church people think the law says you should but you don't. So you failed. You'd better ask for forgiveness. And Jesus was saying that if you want to live free from the power of sin, you need to start living lawlessly. Hold on a minute. I don't, don't get carried away yet. Let me explain. You need to learn to live out from underneath the law. So, was he saying that we need to start doing anything we want to do whenever we want to do it? Because if that's the case, woo-hoo, right? That'd be different from what we always thought religion was about, wouldn't it? There's no way he meant that, right? There's no way he meant that, is there? Of course that's not what he meant. Of course. Here's what he meant. And watch how Paul finishes this out. It's brilliant. Here's what he says. He says, you're not under the law, but you're under grace. You're not under the law, but you're under grace. It's here that the true Christian life diverges from the religious life. The religious life is the life that's demanded by all other religions. Every other religion demands this and leads its people down the road to failure. No matter where we land, a law is always there to remind us how we keep on failing to keep it. And Paul comes along and says, but for the believer, there's a better way. But you're going to have to abandon the way of the law in order to understand the way of grace. Now look at how Jesus explained it to us. See, Jesus tells us what the life of the Jesus follower should look like. So here's what Jesus says in John 15. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me, your memory might say, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So, what's missing here? What don't you see here? When Jesus was telling us how we should live, do you notice that he made absolutely no mention of the law? Do you notice that? He didn't say anything about the law. There's no reference to the Ten Commandments. There's no new list of Jesus' laws that he's given us, that he's told us to follow. He just talked about a vine and a branch. Jesus said, He's like the vine, you're like a branch. The life of the vine goes into the branch, and then the branch bears fruit because the branch remains. The branch abides in the vine. And if the branch stops abiding in the vine, it's game over. Apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. You're disconnected. That's it. It's over. You can do nothing. In other words, apart from this kind of relationship with me, you can do nothing. Now, When we first hear this, our inclination is to go, okay, got it. Tell me what I have to do, and I'll do my best to do it. I'll behave. I'll be nicer. I'll stop yelling. I'll stop cursing as much. I'll be more disciplined. I'll read my Bible. I'll journal. I'll pray three times a day. And Jesus hears us say that, and he goes, no, you missed my point. I'm not asking you to try harder. I'm not telling you to keep the law. I'm not suggesting that you need to be a better rule follower. I'm telling you that you have to abide in me. He's saying, and if you'll just do that, I'll change you. I'll change the way that you've thought about God in the past. And I'll change your entire approach to following me. So that you're not thinking, oh no, I've got to obey all these rules. But so that you'll disconnect from the inevitable result of your failure to follow the rules, if you'll just abide in me, Jesus says. Something life-changing is going to happen to you. And one day, you're going to notice there will be fruit in your life. One day, people are going to say things to you like, wow, you've changed. I've noticed you've changed. And you won't even know how you did it. That's what I'm saying, Jesus was telling us. That's how a life lived abiding in Jesus works. When you abide in Jesus, your life produces much fruit. Now, doesn't that sound better than the old, here are three things you need to do, or here are four things you can never do, or here are the words I never want to hear you say, or here are the clothes, you youngsters, here are the clothes you can never wear. I mean, really? That's different than what we've been taught to think about God, isn't it? That's so much better, isn't it? So, Paul wrote another letter to another church. It was in Galatia. And in Galatians 5, Paul took this idea, this concept, and he decided to explain it. But as Paul's writings often do, when they're translated into English, things get a little bit more confusing. So when we read it, it strains our brains to understand what the heck he's talking about. But that said, we're going to look at it. We're going to look at how Paul explained to the believers in Galatia what Jesus was talking about. When he talked about abiding in Him, so Paul's letter gives us guidance on what it means to stop trying to live under the law and begin walking with the resurrected Christ, whose Spirit lives in you because you are in Him. So Galatians five sixteen. Oh, let me go back. So I say, walk by the Spirit. All right. So what do we see? We see that Paul didn't give us a list of rules either. Instead, he gave us a new way to be. Paul told us to walk. Parapeteo. To walk means to keep in step with. So to walk by the Spirit means to keep in step with the Spirit. To take our cues from the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is in us because we are in Christ. And here's what will happen when we do that. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you walk by the Spirit, things will just be different. You'll break free from the try, fail, feel bad, try harder, fail, feel worse, try harder, fail, cycle over and over and over again. If you learn to walk by the Spirit, your life will be better and you will not be so focused on trying to gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay, what are the desires of the flesh? We don't talk like this a lot. That's not language we use in our everyday life. Well, some of my fleshly desires got the better of me. Like We don't say things like that. But we know what Paul was talking about, right? The desires of the flesh are the appetites that we have naturally. They're appetites that God has given us. But sin has distorted them which has left us destined to mismanage them when we're left to our own devices. But thankfully, Paul didn't leave us to figure this out on our own. Paul continued. He gave us more. Here's what he says. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. So they're in conflict with each other. So so you are not to do whatever you want. So there it is right there. You don't get to do whatever you want. Okay, there it is. But Paul was saying this conflict between spirit and flesh is the conflict you're going to have all the time. God wants me to do this, but I don't want to do this. God wants me to do that, but I want to do something else. And when you're living under the law, you can never overcome that struggle. You can never win. When you're behaving, you'll feel like you're missing out on something. The original FOMO comes from the Bible, right? It's the fear of missing out. Because sin always makes you a promise that it can't keep. Oh, if you were over here, you'd be a lot happier than you are here. And when you're misbehaving, what happens? Well, you feel guilty. Some more than others. Because you did whatever you wanted to do, and now you're suffering from the mess you just created because of your actions. When you're living under the law, you lose. You lose either way. But whenever you find yourself stuck in this conflict between flesh and spirit, you're going to feel guilty are you going to feel arrogant? One of those two things is going to be the result. Now, applied to church people, none of us here, of course, but on the days church people do good, they feel so good about themselves that they just judge everybody else. They judge all the other people around them. I am so good. You're not. Ha! And it's a mess. And that's why the church gets its bad reputation sometimes. Paul said, this isn't the way to go. He continues, but if... But if, here comes the Jesus alternative. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Paul's telling us being under the Spirit is different, fundamentally different than being under the law. Living under the Spirit requires a fundamentally different way of thinking. You see, under the law which sets an impossible standard that leads to constant and consistent failure. The Spirit leads God's people to live a very different kind of life. So Paul continues. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Now you already know what the acts of the flesh are. Though Paul was addressing the things that the Galatian believers were doing wrong, remember Paul's talking to a particular church here, they're pretty universal, right? The issues, the acts of the flesh, sexual immorality, worshiping things other than God, anger, jealousy, fighting, hate, being divisive. Those are all things we'd say are bad, right? Would we all agree with that? You can read Paul's list, and I'm sure in your mind you could come up with other things to add to that list that are acts of the flesh, and a life defined by doing these things is the opposite of a life lived in the Spirit. So then Paul gives us the contrast. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit, here Paul uses this agricultural reference, fruit of the Spirit. Now, I haven't asked everybody today, but to my knowledge, nobody here is a farmer. Any farmers in the house this morning? No. Maybe, maybe previously you were a farmer somewhere else. Now, if you're a gardener, you might understand what's going to happen. Or if you think you have a green thumb, you might understand this. But for everyone else, we probably could use a little clarification. So here's what Paul is talking about. The temptations of the flesh originate externally. We see things outside of us that draw us in and lead us to sin. But fruit, on the flip side, results from something more internal. When you grow a fruit tree, you don't really see the things that happen before the fruit appears, right? Anyone ever done this? If you live in Florida, you've probably done this, right? That is an avocado pit, right? You finish your avocado, you get the pit, you stick some toothpicks in it, and you put it in a glass of water, and what happens? You wait a little bit, and it sprouts. And then you take your sprout. Usually you do this with kids because it's really fun to show kids this stuff. You take your sprout... And you go outside, and you plant it in the dirt, and you tell your kid, isn't this exciting? And then you wait about 10 years to see fruit. And by that time, the kid's living elsewhere and, you know, whatever. But anyhow, it all just happens. It kind of happens. Even though no one's trying to make the avocado grow fruit, it grows fruit. And Paul's saying that. Unlike struggling to keep the law and failing, being in the Spirit works differently. Fruit is produced in and through us, not by us. Paul said it this way, the deeds of the flesh are obvious. The deeds of the flesh are all the bad things that mess up your life. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, patience kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, when religious people, when lawkeepers see this list, they tend to go like this. They go, oh, okay, got it. Got it. If I want to be a Christian, good Christian, all I need to do is be more loving. All I need to do is be more joyful. All I need to do is be more peaceful and more patient. And I need to be more kind and good and more faithful and gentle. I need to do... More good stuff. Thank you, God, for giving me a list. Thank you, God, for giving me the formula. Now I know what I need to do. And Paul hears us say this, and he goes, no, you knuckleheads. It's not a to-do list. It's fruit. Don't memorize the list. Just allow God to bear fruit in you. And then, as you continue to abide in Christ, one day, you'll be able to look back and go, wow. Wow. I didn't know where that came from. But my life looks different now. Look what my life looks like now. All right. So you hear that and you go, okay, Russell. Yeah, are am the pulpit and you're a pastor and you say things like that. And in your little church world, oh, everybody's sweet and happy and rosy and this works. But if you're a typical South Floridian now, if you're a bit of a hard-charging go-getter, you might go, all right. I understand how a follower, a passive person might go for this, but not me. Nobody pushes me around. Nobody tells me what to do. My life is more active, let's say. I have a job to do. I have a family to take care of. I can't afford to be some holy person waiting for God to do all these spiritual things and turn me into a wimp. That's not exciting to me. I'll never get anything done. I can't be all lovey-dovey, passively patient, syrupy-sweet. That won't work in the real world. And gentle, I'm supposed to be gentle? Are you kidding me? You've been out there lately. Gentle doesn't work in the real world. Now, if that's your issue, I want you to hear something. The guy who wrote that accomplished more in his lifetime than we could ever dream of accomplishing in ours. Paul is the man who started nearly all of the churches, all of the Christian communities, all of the Jesus communities in his day. And he did it by traveling the known world by boat. Not by ship, mind you, but by sailboat. A sailboat that you wouldn't get into on a bet. Gun to your head you're not getting in that boat. There is no way. And along the way, Paul was harassed. He was Taunted, and he was attacked, and he was beaten, and he was whipped, and he was stoned, and he was imprisoned. And he did it all without a home office, without Zoom, without a phone, without a car, and even without any Advil. None of it. And 2,000 years later, the institution that Paul started is billions strong, and it's still going. And as for you, and as for me, 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years from now, no one's going to be talking about us. Sorry, but nobody's going to be talking about us. What the Apostle Paul did single-handedly is unprecedented. And do you know what his mindset was as he accomplished all of that? Paul believed that when Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul was able to do it all by the Spirit who lived in him. Paul wanted his life. To be characterized by love. And not because he tried to be more loving. And he wanted his life to be characterized by joy and peace and patience and kindness. But God made it happen. God made it happen for Paul through his Holy Spirit. Because Paul abided. And I'm guessing that you'd love for your life to be characterized by those things as well. But it's not a to-do list. It's a fruit list. As we learn to walk in the Spirit. Paul concluded this way. He said, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who are in Christ and have been separated from the power of sin have have crucified the flesh. And then Paul said, and since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with that Spirit. That's the Christian life. It's keeping in step with the Spirit of God. It's a completely different approach. It's a completely different mindset. And by the way, it's the entire New Testament. When you read the New Testament, it's all there. And if you don't take this to heart, you'll just become religious. And you'll be frustrated your whole life long. It's about keeping in step. It's not about keeping the law. And it all starts with accepting this new identity that says, I am in Christ. What's true of Christ is true of me because I'm in Christ. I'm forgiven. I'm accepted. I'm completely loved. There's nothing more that I can do to get God to love me anymore. I died to the power of sin. I am in Christ. This is who I am. I used to be here with these Adam people who haven't figured it out. But now I'm in Christ. This is the new approach. That's what we've been talking about. Sin, you are not my master. Today, I'm going to do my best to keep in step with the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit that lives in you when you put your faith in Jesus. So the new approach is this. God, I know all of the things I ought to do, and I'll fail. I know the way, God, that I ought to be, and I'll never make it. God, teach me to walk in your Spirit and allow you to produce fruit through me. And God, help me. To stop trying to interact with you on the basis of law. When we interact with God on the basis of law, we've all become Britney Spears. Oops, I did it again. Instead, our response needs to be, God, I got out of step. Listen, it's easier to be religious. It is much easier to be religious. That's why people do it. But it's way more frustrating The Christian life is not about trying to imitate Jesus. You can't imitate Jesus. The Christian life is the life of Christ that's been given to you. It's what guarantees that you go to heaven when you die and what guarantees that the power of sin no longer has a hold on you. It's what allows you to say no to sin. It's what allows you to say no sin. I don't have to do that anymore because now I'm in Christ. And Christ is in me. And your power over me has been broken. It's a brand new approach. It's the foundation upon which the New Testament church, the New Testament communities were launched. And as we wrap up, I pray that we'll not only understand this, but we'll make this understanding a part of our being. And that as we leave here today, we'll leave here committed not to do, but to let but to walk with Jesus. And I pray that one day, maybe in a week, maybe in a month, but one day each of us will be able to look back on our lives and honestly say, Holy smokes, I've changed. And I wasn't even trying to change. I was just letting the Spirit of God lead me. I was just allowing Jesus to live through me. Wouldn't that be awesome? Amen? let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for helping us to try to understand our nature, our nature to do what we want, to think that we can fix everything, to think that we're responsible for it all. Our nature that causes us to try and fail and try and fail and just feel frustration or just feel judgmental. Thank you for allowing us to see that that's not your call. That's not the way you want us to go. Thank you for allowing us to see that being in Christ, abiding in Christ is the way to go so that your fruit can show through us, can grow through us, and can be seen by others, giving you the glory. God, as we head out into the world this week, we would ask that uh, you keep your hand on us and help us to walk along with you. Help us to be a light and an example for those around us who don't know you so that they might come to meet you. God, we thank you for choosing us and calling us. We thank you for all that you do. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.